Good morning. Stop singing a little bit right there at the end of uh, Where Could I Go? Y'all were just sounded angelic, and it, uh, it was beautiful. You might not get to hear yourselves, you know, down here, but up here, it, it gave me a little glimpse of what it'll be like to be with our, with our Savior in heaven, praising him one day. So that's something to look forward to. And uh, anyhow, <clears throat> y'all know that I'm not much of a public speaker, um, but I, I'm as ready as I'm going to be. So here we are. <laughs> uh, I'm going to talk to you today and next week. Um, this is from a Bible study that we did in our life group. Um, it's looking into the parallels between Jesus, or I'm sorry, Joseph in the book of Genesis and Jesus. And then next week, we're going to extrapolate that. There's also a prophetic element to that. Um, and so um, this was a really neat study. I think we had a lot of fun with it at life group. Um, it, I can't take the credit for all of it. Uh, my dad had passed along a sermon from a, a Muslim guy who's a preacher in Hawaii who put this together. Actually, he just had it in one sermon, and then we turned it into about six weeks of two-hour Bible studies. So we ought to get out of here about 10 o'clock tonight, I guess. So <laughs> anyhow, and so the people from my life group are excused, and they can go home. But now, actually, this is like the review, right? Because that's the whole point is that we learn this stuff, and then we can teach it So ourselves. But um, anyhow, um, uh, we, we really had fun digging into this, and then I'm going to try to distill it back down into two sermons instead of one. So, um, so as part of the introduction for this, you know, um, a few things to note. Um, and by the way, if you do want uh, the detailed notes after I do this and you, um, you like it, my notes are, are significantly different. I don't know if you can see that than Rex's. He writes his out. I'm an engineer. Mine is in a table. So anyways... <laughs> That's how I do my notes. But, uh, so, um, but if, if you're interested, I'll give you the full notes. I'm going to have to shorten it up, obviously. Um, when we look at, at parallels with the Old Testament, Myron mentioned one with the children's sermon today, the, the, um, the story of Moses and Egypt, and, and we can see a typology or a, a similarities there between us living in sin and our Savior, in this case Moses, coming, saying, let my people go. Pharaoh represents Satan, etc. And the people are freed, and then they're on to the promised land, just like we are headed towards our home in heaven. So that's a, one of the most famous typologies from the Bible. But the story of Joseph has a strong typology um, that's sometimes overlooked. And um, the neat thing about this is that half of it has been already fulfilled, and half of it is yet to be fulfilled. And when you look at Genesis, you know, that is the first book of the Bible. It starts out with the story of original sin, and it ends with this story of Joseph that to me is pretty awesome because what I see in this is God saying, yeah, you guys sinned, you messed up, but I've already got a plan, book one. And then the rest of, the, of human history is about this. So I think when you see this uh, and, and follow along, you're going to think that's pretty cool too. Hopefully you do. Um, the other thing that's really cool about this is that through type studies, God shows us a lot about his nature. Um, and one of the primary things about God is that he is consistent in his dealings with humanity throughout time. You know, a lot of people will take and criticize the Bible because they'll say, well, look what he did in the Old Testament, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, the New Testament, turn the other cheek. 
what they miss, of course, is the big picture of what God is doing through human history. But we need to be able to trust in God. Our, you know, when we look at our Lord, sometimes we look at him like our earthly fathers. If we had an earthly father who was angry, we might expect God is angry. If we had an earthly father who was absent, maybe we think God is absent if he is unpredictable. But God is none of those things. God is loving and he is consistent. And so I think when we look at this in the scriptures, we're, we're going to see how God had a plan from day one and it hasn't changed. And so I think that's also something that can give us comfort. Um, so let's jump right into it. Um, what we're going to do, I'm going to ask you all to turn to Genesis chapter 37 and just kind of keep a finger in Genesis. Um, this is going to be more of a Bible study than a sermon, I guess. Um, what I'm going to try to do is, is everybody more or less familiar with the story of Genesis? I'll kind of recap just the bigger picture and then we'll dig into some of the details. Or sorry, sorry, the story of Joseph. So Jacob, uh, also known as Israel, um, has 12 sons. And the second youngest of his son is Joseph. Um, he loves Joseph more than all the other sons. He kind of spoils Joseph. He buys him a coat of many colors or has one made. Um, Joseph's a little bit of a tattletale. He tells stories on his brothers. That doesn't really endear him to them. And then he has a dream where uh, his mother and father and his brothers and sisters will bow to him, and that pretty much infuriates his brothers. They're not too keen on that idea, um, so they started to hate him. And um, one day his father sends him down to check on his brothers, because I kind of think they're an untrustworthy lot, and so um, Joseph's kind of his spy, and he goes on down to see what the brothers are doing, seeing if they're actually watching the sheep or messing around someplace. They see him coming, from a distance, and they decide, we're, we've had enough of this guy. We're going to kill him. And so they, they said, let's just kill him and throw him into a pit or something, and, and we'll tell Dad that a wild animal ate him. And so Reuben, one of the brothers, he says, let's not kill him. Just, just throw him in the pit for now. He's trying to think of a way out of this, but he, he's not kind of going along with the whole thing. And, but they took uh, Joseph's coat of many colors and threw him in a pit, and then they sat down to eat, and when they were eating, they look, and, and Judah looks, and he sees a camel train coming, and it's a Ishmaelite caravan. So they sell Joseph to the Ishmaelites as a slave, and uh, they take him down to Egypt. Uh, they, they covered his coat with blood and went back and told their dad that wild animals must ate him, and, and then jo of course, Jacob, he was beside himself, and uh, as far as he knew, Joseph was gone. So uh, he's working down in as a slave uh, to Potiphar, an officer in the army of Pharaoh in Egypt. And um, while he's there, I'm kind of skipping ahead to chapter 39. If you're sort of glancing at your Bible, we'll dig in a little further here in a bit. But um, <clears throat> he's living in Potiphar's house, and the Lord is with him in everything that he does. And uh, so he begins to be promoted. And... Um, Pretty soon he's over the entire household in Potiphar's house. And he, it, the Bible also tells us that he was a handsome man. And so Potiphar's wife starts to pay attention to Joseph. And pretty soon she's trying to seduce him. And she keeps telling him, lie with me. And day in and day out, she's after him. And he says, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? I'm not going to do that. And so one day when no one else is in the house, she grabs a hold of him and 
and she tries again to seduce him, so he runs out, and she grabs a hold of his clothes, and she's holding his clothes, so he runs out of the place naked. And so she's angry now because she's been turned down, and so she, um, she falsely accuses him to the staff and to her husband of having raped her. <clears throat> and of course, Potiphar is angry. He's a mighty man, an army person, and so he throws Joseph in jail. So he's falsely accused, and he's imprisoned. But even in the prison, he comes up in the ranks because he, again, is doing what right, and, and so he becomes sort of the uh, number two guy there, and, and the jailer um, has him help him. And so at some point in time, Pharaoh becomes angry at his butler and his banker, baker, banker, <laughs> and uh, he tosses them in prison too. And each one of them has a dream. And Joseph interprets their dreams, and the dreams come true. One of them is restored to helping Pharaoh in his former capacity, and the other one is executed. And when Pharaoh, later on, about two years later, has a dream himself, suddenly the butler remembers Joseph, and he calls Joseph. He says, I know someone that can interpret your dream for you, and he calls him out. And so Joseph interprets the dream for Pharaoh. Um, the dream of Pharaoh is about um, seven years of plenty, followed by seven years of drought. And Pharaoh says, well, what should I do about this? And Joseph says, well, you need to stockpile food for the drought that's coming. And Pharaoh assigns that duty to Joseph and makes him number two in the kingdom. And, uh, and then basically that, that is the way that God saves his people, the 12 tribes. He has 12 brothers that are the named 12 tribes of Israel. And um, later on when the famine, thank you, Slade, when the famine comes, uh, Jacob and his sons, through a series of events, come down to Egypt and they're saved uh, because of the forethought of God. And so, so that's kind of a, just a general thing of the story. But now we're going to kind of dig into some of the details this week and, and next. Um, to look at how there are these parallels then with, with Christ. So first of all, and now I'm backing up to, uh, to chapter 37 again. In Genesis 37, 3, uh, it tells us that, uh, that Jacob, it's, uh, he was also known as Israel, it says, Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his children, because he was the son of his old age. So Joseph was loved by his father, just like Jesus was loved by his father. Matthew 3, uh, 16 and 17, in, right after Jesus is baptized, there's a voice from heaven. It says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. So there's our first parallel. In Genesis 37, 4, uh, it says that his brothers hated him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. Just like Jesus was hated by the Jews. And... Uh, Anthony's going to put up John 15, uh, 18. Jesus told us, he said, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, and that is why the world hates you. That's good on that, Anthony. Um, so we know that Jesus was hated, and, and as his followers, we, we should expect that same hate in return. Next, Joseph dreams of ruling over his brothers. Uh, in Genesis 37, 5 through 11, 
it talks about this dream that he had where um, there was these sheaves in the field and his sheave stood up, all of theirs bowed down to it and so forth. Um, Jesus also, we know, will rule over all men. Um, Joseph was rejected by his brothers in Genesis 37, 8. It says, his brothers said to him, shall you indeed reign over us? Or shall you indeed have dominion over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. And in John chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, um, we're told that Jesus was not received by his own. It says he was in the world and through the world, although the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. So we're starting to see the parallels developing here. Um, next, Joseph is sent by his father to see his brothers. In Genesis uh, 37, verse 14, uh, Israel says to Joseph, Please go and see if it is well with your brothers and well with the flocks and bring back word to me. Um, just like Jesus was sent by the Father to mankind, we know that John 3.17 tells us that God sent His Son not to condemn the world, but to save the world. Okay, so, so Jesus was sent by His Father as well. Next in Genesis uh, 37.18-20, we see uh, that His brothers conspire to kill Him. It says, Now when they see, saw Him afar off, even before He came near them, they conspired against Him to kill Him. Then they said to one another, Look, this dreamer is coming. Let us come now, therefore, let us kill him and cast him into some pit. And we shall say, Some wild beast has devoured him. We shall see what will become of his dreams. So they, they man, that's a lot of hatred there. But that's the same hatred that Jesus uh, faced. The Jews also conspired to kill Jesus. We know in, in Matthew 26, it tells of how the chief priests and the scribes and the elders plotted to take Jesus by trickery. Um, and they, they spent most of Jesus' ministry trying to entrap Jesus. Um, Joseph was sold by one of his 12 brothers in Genesis th uh, chapter 37, verse 21 and 22. Uh, this is where Reuben, when, they're trying to, when he heard that his other brothers wanted to kill Jesus, uh, he said, let's just cast him into the pit. And then later, uh, Judah said, what profit is there if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Let's sell him to the Ishmaelites. Let not our hand be upon him, for he's our brother and our flesh. Um, and Jesus was also betrayed by one of twelve. In this case, it was his twelve disciples. Um, in Matthew 26, it tells about how Judas um, led the uh, soldiers and the scribes and the Pharisees to Jesus in the garden, and he told them, he says, Whoever I kiss is the one. And then when he walks up to Jesus, he says, Greetings, Rabbi. You know, it's uh, quite a, a betrayal there. So Jesus was betrayed by one of his brothers. And if you recall, he did call the disciples his brothers. <clears throat> in uh, chapter 37, 23 in Genesis, uh, Joseph is stripped of his robe. It tells us that they, they uh, took his tunic off and they threw him into the pit. Um, and the, the, the coat of many colors. In the same way, Jesus was stripped of his robe, if you remember when the Roman soldiers were mocking him. And then he was thrown into a pit in uh, chapter 37, verse 24. Um, 
it says they stripped him of his robe, then they cast him into a pit. The, empty, the pit was empty and there was no water in it. It sounds a lot like the tomb that Jesus was placed into in uh, Matthew 27, that Joseph of Arimathea donated his tomb to, to uh, be the tomb of, of our Savior. The next thing we see in, in uh, verse 28 of our passage here, um, we see that Joseph was sold uh, to the Midianites. It says they sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver, and they took Joseph to Egypt, just like our Lord was sold for uh, silver. In his betrayer, um, after this, it says... Um, Reuben, this is back in verse 37, he, uh, he sees that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes, and he returned to his brothers and said, the lad is no more, and I, where shall I go? He realizes his guilt there, so he's remorseful in the same way that Jesus' betrayer, Judas, was remorseful. Um, so in Matthew 27, verses 3 to 5, we read, when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse, and returned the thirty pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us, they replied. That's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. So he, he, it was too late, but he, he was remorseful that the money wasn't worth the betrayal. Are you following me so far, these parallels? There's a lot of parallels here. And uh, even when we were doing the study, we found more, but we don't have enough time. Unless y'all want us to till 10 tonight. So, okay, let's see, where am I here? Uh, the next thing, we know that Jesus, uh, or Joseph, they bloodied his robe. They, they put the wild animal blood on it in order to uh, trick the, their father into thinking that he was dead. In the same way that Jesus was whipped and bled. Um, then Joseph was sent into slavery. We saw that in, in Genesis 37-36. In the same way, Jesus was sent to earth to die. In John 10, uh, verse 17 and 18, Jesus tells us, The reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life, only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my Father. So Jesus knew what he was here for. He, he was a man with a plan. Uh, in Joseph's case, he didn't realize what God's plan was because he wasn't the son of God. So that's, that is one place where the parallel breaks down, right? But um, anyhow, um, we're going to skip up to, uh, in, if you're following in Genesis um, chapter 39 now, um, when Joseph is enslaved, he obviously is suffering as a servant, right? You you work hard as a servant, but you don't really receive the reward for it. You just get a place to sleep and something to eat. And if you're lucky, you don't get beat, right? So being a servant's not really ideal business, even if you are number two in the household. And so he's suffering. Um, in the same way, we know that Jesus is called the suffering servant. Um, and there's a famous passage in Isaiah 52 that talks about uh, the sufferings of Christ prophetically. But... Um, but through all of this, um, in Genesis 39, it says that the Lord was with Joseph. Chapter 39, verse 2, the Lord was with Joseph, and he was a successful man, and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. And the Egyptian saw that the Lord was with him, and the Lord did 
made all he did to prosper in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and served him. And so the Lord was with Joseph, and of course the Lord was with Jesus. Um, in John chapter 10, verses 27 to 30, Jesus tells us that the Father and him are one. So the Lord is always with Jesus. Everything that Jesus did prospered because God was with him, God was in him, and he was God. So then we go forward to, in Genesis chapter 39, verses 7 to 12, um, we see that how Joseph was tempted by Potiphar's wife. Um, verse 7 says, It came to pass after these things that his master's wife cast longing eyes on Joseph, and she said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Look, my master does not know what is with me in the house, and he has committed all that he has to my hand. There is no one greater in this house than I, nor has he kept back anything from me but you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And you notice that he correctly identifies all of our sin. We, we may hurt people as a result of our sin, but all of our sin is sin against God. And Joseph knows that. So Joseph runs out of the house. Uh, it says in verse 13, it says, um, or sorry, verse 12, she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in his hand and fled and ran outside. In the same way that Joseph was tempted and didn't fall, Jesus, we know, was tempted and did not fall. Uh, in Matthew chapter 4, it tells us of the temptation of Christ by the devil um, to exalt himself over the world and things like that. Then uh, Joseph was falsely accused in Genesis 39 uh, verse 13, uh, so it was when she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and fled outside, she called to the men of her house and spoke to them, saying, see, he has brought in to us a Hebrew to mock us. He came in to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And when it happened, when he, when he heard that I lifted my voice and cried out, he left his garment with me and fled and went outside. So he was falsely accused. But he did not defend himself. There's no record of Joseph saying, no, I didn't. And if you think about it, had he, what would have happened? Potiphar's wife would have then been identified as the one who sinned and, and probably caused major problems in the household there. Um, in the same way, Jesus was falsely accused. In Matthew 26, it tells about how the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees sought false witnesses to testify falsehoods against Jesus. But at first it says they couldn't find any, and then Finally, they found some guys that kind of twisted his words about his um, saying that, you know, he, he said, if, if you tear down this temple, I will build it again in three days. And, and they basically said he, he plans to tear down the temple. And so, and of course, then they said he was a blasphemer because he was also going to rebuild it. But Jesus, in the same way, did not defend himself. Um, there's some familiar passages in Matthew uh, 26. Um, verses 62 and 63, where, um, and I'm going to go ahead and go to those. Or actually, how hard is that to, for you to grab there? Did not highlight those for Anthony, so bear with me here. Okay, Matthew 26, 62, uh, the highest priest arose and said to Jesus, do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? But Jesus kept silent. Okay, and then 
later on, in, also in Matthew uh, 27, a chapter later in verse 12, uh, he's then in, in front of Pilate. Pilate asks him, are you the king of Jews? And he said, it is, it is as you say. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he answered nothing. And Pilate said, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he answered him not one word, so that the governor marveled greatly. So then we read in Genesis 39 that uh, Joseph was imprisoned uh, based on the, the weight of the false accusations. Uh, chapter 39, verse 20, it says, Then Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, a place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in the prison. Uh, in the same way, Jesus, he didn't spend a lot of time in prison, but they did take him to the praetorium, which was basically a, like a Roman garrison or a compound uh, where they beat him and, and kept him for some time there before the crucifixion. So you can see where we're at in the story now. We've been kind of tracking along. We're, we're showing um, who Christ is through the story of Joseph, and we're coming up close to the, uh, to the crucifixion. Okay. So now we're in Genesis chapter 40, and this is while he is in prison. Uh, chapter 40, verse 1, it says, It came to pass after these things that the butler and the baker of the king of Egypt offended their lord, the king of Egypt, and Pharaoh was angry with his two officers. So he put them in custody of the house of the captain of the guard in the prison, the place where Joseph was confined. Um, and of course, in this case, the butler, his specific duty is to give Pharaoh his wine. So we have the butler or the wine bearer and the baker. I think we can all see the parallel there to the, um, to the Last Supper, right? The elements. Jesus says, this is my body, this is my blood. So those two individuals, now we're at the time of the story where Jesus is uh, preparing to be crucified and giving the instructions for the Last Supper. Okay? Now, the two guys that are in jail have these dreams. The butler tells his dream to Joseph. This is around verse 9 in chapter 40. It says, Behold, in my dream was a vine was before me. In the vine were three branches. It was as though it budded. Its blossoms shot forth, and its clusters brought forth grapes. Then Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes, pressed them into Pharaoh's cup, and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. And Joseph says to him, This is the interpretation of it. The three branches are three days. Now within three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your place, and you will put Pharaoh's cup in his hand according to the former manner when you were his butler. And then he says in verse 14, But remember me when it is well with you, and please show kindness to me. Make mention of me to Pharaoh and get me out of this house. For indeed I was stolen away from the land of the Hebrews, and I also I have done nothing here that they should put me into the dungeon. So Joseph points to his innocence once again, but he sees that the, the butler will be restored. And, um, and he gives that um, message. And of course, he, now another point I want to make is that Joseph was imprisoned with two criminals, right? We're talking about the two. Just like we know that Jesus was prisoned or punished with two criminals, right? There were the criminals to his left and his right. And the second criminal, in this case, the baker, he also has a dream. Uh, the chief baker saw that the butler's interpretation was good. This is verse 16 in chapter 40. So he says to Joseph, I also had a dream. 
There were three white baskets on my head. In the uppermost basket were all kinds of baked goods for Pharaoh, and then birds came and ate them out of the basket on my head. So Joseph answered and said, this is the interpretation of it. The three baskets are three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift off your head from you and hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat your flesh. So his, his interpretation did not have such a happy ending. Now, let's go back to the prisoners on the, uh, on the cross with Jesus. In Luke chapter 23, verses 39 to 43, we read, One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are justly punished, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. So one of the thieves died. The second thief, the one who said, remember me when you come into your kingdom, lived. And that is us, right? We're the thief that said, remember me. Okay? So, pardon me, but it makes me very emotional because we have such a good God that he gives us a chance, even when we've lived our whole lives as criminals, at the very end, we can still come to him and be with him in paradise. So the other thing, of course, that's neat about these two dreams is that in both of them, Joseph foretold that they would be raised in three days. Okay, raised out of the, out of the, the jail, which we already said is analogous to the tomb. So um, in the same way, in Matthew chapter 20, Jesus foretells that he will be raised in three days. Now Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. On the way, he took the twelve aside and said to them, We are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. But on the third day, he will be raised to life. So Jesus also prophetically knew that he would be raised in three days. Isn't that rich? I mean, I hope, I hope you all are nodding because what, I, what I'm hoping to do today is, is build all these parallels to show how much of the story of Joseph prophetically has been answered already in Jesus. And then next week, we're going to move that forward into looking at how we can apply that to uh, end times prophecy. And, and by the way, uh, when I first came across this, that's what Rex was doing, was preaching the Revelation study that we had. And so I'm kind of assuming that most of us kind of have the background knowledge, and I'll try to fill in as much of that as I can next week. But there's some great confirmations of our understanding of what the end times will look like in Joseph. But I, I want everybody to be able to, you know, look at these parallels and say, we can put faith in this in order to extrapolate it into, into prophecy. Okay, so in Genesis chapter 40, again, uh, in verse 14, we know that Joseph said, remember me to the butler when, uh, when he told him that he would be restored to his post holding Pharaoh's cup. In the same way, what did Jesus do with the cup? He said, remember me. Do this in remembrance of me. So there's another parallel there to the, uh, the Last Supper. In Genesis 40, 15, Joseph proclaimed his innocence. He said, I was stolen away and I've done nothing that they should put me here in this dungeon. 
in the same way that we know that Jesus was innocent, and even though he didn't say anything, he didn't defend himself, um, you recall the story of Pilate and his wife and how she said, don't have anything to do with that man. And Pilate tried and tried to just get them to go crucify somebody else and satisfy their bloodthirst. They weren't interested in that. They kept yelling, crucify him. And so finally, Pilate, he just went and washed his hands, it says, and he said, I am innocent of this man's blood. The law recognized Jesus' innocence. Now in chapter 41 of Genesis, then we see the next thing here. Uh, two years later, um, which could, you know, if, if we're saying that Joseph in the, in the jail is sort of like Jesus being in the tomb, um, waiting to be raised, this could be like the two days before the resurrection, after the crucifixion, right? Uh, Pharaoh has a dream. He's standing by the river. Uh, up out of the river come seven cows that are fat and fine looking and they're feeding in the meadow and everything seems well. And then suddenly seven other cows come up out of the river, but they're ugly and gaunt and they go over by the other cows and then they eat the other cows up. And Pharaoh wakes up and just says, wow, this is not a good dream. So he goes back to sleep and he has a second dream. This time there's seven heads of grain that come up on one stalk and they're plump and they're good. They look really great. But then seven thin heads also come up and they are just all dry. They've been blighted by the winds um, and the seven thin heads devour the seven plump heads just like the seven gaunt cows devour the seven fat cows. So Pharaoh wakes up and He's disturbed. It's a weird dream. He's not sure what's going on there. He calls all his magicians together, and nobody can give him a decent interpretation. And then the butler hears, and finally he remembers. And he says, oh, geez, I remember my faults. It says this day, when Pharaoh was angry with me, put me in jail. We each had a dream, me and the baker, and uh, there was a guy that interpreted, a young Hebrew man, uh, and he interpreted our dreams for us. And it came to pass just as he interpreted for both of us. So uh, Pharaoh then sends and calls to Joseph and brings him quickly out of the dungeon. It says he shaved and changed his clothing and came to Pharaoh. Can you imagine being in prison for two, three, maybe more years? It doesn't really tell us the total time. And then all of a sudden you just get the call, hey, you, you're going to stand before Pharaoh. Ten minutes. Shave, shower, clean up. <laughs> it's time to go. And, and it, this is, by the way, the same way that our Lord was raised, right? In a twinkling of an eye, it says we will be changed. and We will be like him. So, um, so Joseph comes quickly to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh tells him the dream. And Joseph hears it, and he says, well, this is the in interpretation. Uh, Got to get on the right page here. He says, uh, the dreams of Pharaoh are the same. God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good heads are seven years. The dreams are one. Um, there will be seven years of plenty will come throughout all the land of Egypt, uh, but after them, seven years of famine will arise, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt, and the famine will deplete the land. So the plenty will not be known in the land because of the famine. It will be very severe. And the dream was repeated to Pharaoh twice, it says, because the thing is established by God, and God will shortly bring it to pass. So then he says, Pharaoh should select a wise man and set him over the land of Egypt and uh, collect one-fifth of the produce of the land in the seven plentiful years, 
store up all that food and get ready for the famine. So Pharaoh hears that advice and he says, that is good advice. But he says, where am I going to find a guy like this? I, you know, I need somebody that can execute this plan for me. And he says, where can we find someone like this? A man within whom is the Spirit of God. So Pharaoh says to Joseph, since God is showing you all this, there's no one as wise and discerning as you. You shall be over all my house and all my people shall be ruled according to your word. Only in regard to the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. So at this point in the story, if you understand Egyptian culture, of course, Pharaoh is considered to be God. He's worshipped in that culture. So in this instance, even though in the Moses story, we see Pharaoh as Satan, right? Because he won't let them go. He won't let them out of slavery. In this parallel, Pharaoh is God. And as Joseph is our Jesus type, it says, Joseph will be number two to God. And we know, of course, that that is the case, that it says that Jesus Christ sits at the right hand of the Father, and, um, and so he has been set over all things, just like Joseph was set over all the land. It says that Pharaoh took a ring off his hand, put it on Joseph's hand. He clothed him in garments of fine linen, put a gold chain on his neck. Sounds kind of like the descriptions of Jesus in, uh, in the book of Revelations when we see Jesus clad in, in beautiful robes. And he had Joseph ride in the second chariot, which he had, and they cried out before him, bow the knee. So, so Joseph was raised up to rule, just like we know that Jesus was raised up to rule. The angel said, he is not here, he is risen, just as he said, and then we know that he has been seated at the right hand of the Father. Next we see then, and now we're kind of moving, this is, now we're, we've, you can see that we've kind of went from the um, crucifixion and the Last Supper. Now we're moving towards the prophetic part of this. Uh, and and uh, I have no idea how long I've gone, by the way. What, how long is it? Am I okay? <laughs> okay. Um, I don't know if I'm going too fast or slow. I was going to bring my phone up here and watch it, but oh well. You get what you get. So, uh, so Joseph, we saw, prophesied a seven-year famine. And Jesus prophesies a tribulation as well. And this is kind of where I want to um, prepare us a little bit for next week, but also to, to talk about the end times prophecy. Um, when I was a kid, I, I grew up in the church, and uh, my parents were young believers. They weren't very um, deep in their faith. And between moving and some different things that happened, we attended several different churches of different types, they were all uh, Protestant, evangelical, but some were more Pentecostal than others and so forth. And I remember sitting in the front row, much the same as my two daughters here are, and a man was standing, I was probably about their age, uh, early teens, and a man was preaching, and he pointed at my brother and I, and he made a point of saying, uh, you know, Jesus is coming soon, and uh, the rapture is going to be really soon. These two boys here are not going to grow up, they're never going to get married, they're never going to have kids, they're, they're not going to grow old because the rapture's coming tomorrow. Okay, whatever. We all know that that didn't happen. Here I am getting a little bit long in the tooth. So, But, um, but I also remember sort of resenting that idea that you know, I was going to get gypped because I wanted to learn how to drive something fierce at that time. But anyways, um, uh, I've also heard, and I'm sure you all have too in Christian circles, a lot of people that have a lot of fear 
regarding the end times. Um, and I really appreciated Rex's sermon uh, regarding Revelation, that he spent a lot of time going into detail to talk about the pre-tribulation rapture uh, and how the, the purpose of the tribulation is really for the salvation of the Israelites. Okay, and so that's really what a lot of what we're going to talk about tomorrow or tomorrow next week is and, um, and focus on that idea. But um, I think that if you don't have those two concepts firmly embedded in your heart, it's going to cause a lot of fear. And, and as we know that as Christians, we are not given a spirit of fear. We're given a, a spirit of, of truth and grace and strength, but we should face the future without fear because of what the Lord Jesus has done for us. And so if you are fearful, I hope to encourage you not to be fearful about the future. And, um, and, I, and I pray that the Lord would help you, you know, to not be afraid. Um, the, the second, you know, other than the, the idea of the pre-trib uh, rapture, then what goes along with that is the idea that maybe Christians need to suffer through the tribulation. And I'm sure you all know somebody who feels this way, and typically they're they're only partially informed. They might not have a very good walk with the Lord. And oftentimes this kind of thinking, fear thinking, what it leads to is a lot of stockpiling of bullets and beans and, you know, thinking that they need to, whatever, buy a camo and work on their marksmanship and, and maybe have a place to flee to in the mountains or, you know, learn all these skills and, you know, all this kind of stuff. And, and the point of that is that, again, that God doesn't want us to have a spirit of fear but also those are very much so not biblical teachings. And so Rex gave us a lot of different ways to look at that when he did the Revelation study. This Genesis study will also kind of reconfirm some of that for us. Um, but I'd, I'd just like to encourage you that if you do fear the future, and, and we don't know when the Lord is coming back clearly. I mean, there's, there's plenty to fear in this life, but I would also say that we have nothing to fear in this life. We know that even... Uh, you know, most of the apostles, according to church tradition, were martyred, but we know where they are and we know where we will be. So no matter what happens, you know, there, whether there's political unrest or pandemics and, you know, uh, international terrorism, whatever it may be, God has us in his hands and he will take care of us. So this is a good news. But um, with respect to end times in particular, then I want to kind of look at some of these uh, just give you a teaser for next week, and then I'll kind of wrap up here. So, um, first of all, let's see, I'm going back to Genesis uh, 41 here. Um, we look at Joseph. Uh, we just saw how he was raised up to be number two to Pharaoh. And, uh, and Pharaoh says, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no man may lift his hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. He shows that he's in control. And then in verse 45, this is really cool. Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zaphnath-Paneah. That part ain't cool. And, then, and he gave him as a wife, Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On. So Joseph went out over all the land of Egypt. Okay, what's so cool about that? With respect to end times prophecy, Joseph is a Jew. His wife, Asenath, then is an Egyptian. To a Jew, what is she? What's the word? A Gentile. Okay. Before the famine, Joseph takes unto himself a Gentile bride. The famine is seven days. 
prophetic of seven years of tribulation. And the point is, you, the church, are the bride of Christ. We're called that repeatedly. So if you have fear that you will have to live through the tribulation, as a believer, that is not true. Take heart. What the scripture says here is that the bride of Christ is taken before the tribulation. Isn't that cool? Very cool. Also, in this one, who was Asenath? It says she was the daughter of Potipharah, the priest of On. Okay, this is and some kind of a occult practice. I don't know what the priest of On exactly does. But that's the same as us, right? When, when we are without Christ, uh, and you can see it in our nation today, um, people who are unbelievers believe all kinds of weird stuff, whether it's New Age, you know, crystal uh, beliefs, or they become Wiccans, or, um, you know, maybe, um, or, you know, any number of it. I'm drawing a blank here, but you, can, you get the point. There's a lot of occult practice. If you don't fill your heart with Jesus Christ, something will come in there, and it will most likely be something very dark. And so people, people do a lot of strange things uh, when they don't know the truth. But when his wife, Asenath, becomes Joseph's wife, what happens to her? Of course, she's protected. She doesn't experience any famine, and she comes out of her religion. You, as in those days, you would be expected to adopt the faith of your husband, right? So, so it's pretty neat that that uh, that it makes that point that she that he is given the Gentile bride and she's pulled out before. Then in verse uh, forty-six, it says Joseph was thirty years old when he stood before Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. Now in the seven plentiful years, the ground brought forth abundantly. So he gathered up all the food of the seven years which were in the land of Egypt and laid up the food in the cities. He laid up in every city the food of the fields which surrounded them. Joseph gathered very much grain as the sand of the sea until he stopped counting, for it was immeasurable. Okay. And we know how much Jesus used the analogy of wheat fields, right? He said, look up under the fields. The fields are, are white for the harvest, right? So we people are those grains of wheat that Jesus is harvesting. Joseph, it says, at the age of 30, uh, begins his work. And we know that Jesus began his ministry also at the age of 30. Anthony, if you'd put the Luke up there. It says, when all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. As he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him bodily, in a bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. Now Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. He was the son, so it was thought of Joseph, etc., etc., etc. Okay, so, so there again is another parallel for us. But that immeasurable grain that he is talking about. Okay, we have seven years of fat preceding seven years of famine. We are living in those seven years of fat. Uh, people call this the age of grace, right? Right. Today is the, the old Billy Graham thing. Today is the day of salvation, right? You can choose willingly to come to Jesus now, be, become part of his bride, and, and be harvested among the souls and, and be there when he comes to rapture the church to protect his bride, to get her out of the way before the tribulation. And so Jesus is harvesting souls, and you know those of you who have trusted in Christ that are sitting in this room are a part of that harvest. 
And we see in Revelations chapter 7, now we kind of flip for our last passage here to the end times uh, um, prophecy in Revelation. John tells us in his vision, he says, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Okay, so that's, that's the harvest. This part, if you remember from the book of Revelations in chapter 7, by the way, Rex made the point of uh, right before this is the calling of the 144,000, the, the 12 tribes. There was 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. Um, those are the Jews that will, through the tribulation, do the work of bringing the Jews to knowledge of Christ. But right after that, we see the, the throng, those of all the tribes, the tongues, and many nations. And where are they? They're in the throne room. They're not on earth anymore. So that's, that's the good news. So, so there's a kind of a second confirmation there. Um, so I guess just to summarize this, um, you know, I, praise God that he, ever since the fall of man, has had a plan. He laid that plan out clearly. He has been consistent in executing his plan. His dealings with mankind are always consistent and they're always good. Um, he's shown us here in this passage of Genesis a, a little bit of a glimpse of the way that he plans to deal with mankind through the Savior. And next week we will go into looking at, at what that means with respect to the tribulation. Um, but my, my hope is that you come out of this with just one more piece of information, a, a confirmation that tells you that you are secure in the hands of our Savior no matter what the times bring us. And also, that if you don't know the Lord, that you would want to know the Lord so that you would be part of that raptured church and you wouldn't be facing the wrath uh, that is to come in the tribulation. So if you, uh, if you don't know Jesus as your personal Savior, you can talk to me or to many of the men of the church, but, uh, but there is no time like the present. The Scripture says that we don't know when He's coming back. He'll be like a thief in the night. And so um, I would encourage you to, to, to find out who Jesus is and to, to follow him. So that's all I have for us today. I uh, will close this in prayer, I guess. So, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you uh, for the truth that is in it. We thank you for how deep it is and how rich it is, uh, how beautiful it is, and, and yet how simple the story is and how easy it is to come to you, Lord. I just thank you that you uh, that you give us give us your word and you and you bring challenges into our lives to help us to to draw near to you and to search out truth. I ask Lord that you would put people in each one of our path that we would help be busy with you in the harvest that you're about, Lord, so that the harvest would be great and that heaven would be packed. And I ask this in your name, Amen.